He is risen. Indeed. Amen. Anybody else charged up? Ready to go like bust through a wall? <clears throat> Love that. I don't even have to preach. Just show that a couple times. Uh, good morning. It's so wonderful to have you with us, um, especially if you're new to West Hills and this is your first time here. Um, I hope and, and pray and trust that you'll be very welcomed. Um, we're so, so glad that you're here. My name is Will Duvall, the lead pastor here uh, at West Hills, and um, just reiterate what, what Missy already said, both as far as welcoming you, and we just, we want to thank you for being with us and worshiping us, so please do, you know, um, give us a, a record of your attendance, drop that at the info bar, we want to thank you for being here, um, and I'll plug uh, Entry Point as well, that's, that's coming up here in two weeks, and that's, that's your best place to get all your answers uh, to, to all your questions about uh, anything you heard in the video, church, Christianity, this church specifically, West Hills, um, please consider coming back for that on May 5th. Um, you're coming at a great time in the life of our church, West Hills, uh, not only because we've got all this fun stuff going on that you see in your bulletin, men's fellowship event, women's fellowship event coming up, family events, all sorts of fun stuff, but because um, next week we're actually going back uh, in our series that we've been working through in the Gospel of Mark called Rooted. Uh, Mark wants to root us deeper in, in, in our faith and give us a, a clearer picture of who Jesus is and, and what the Christian faith is all about. We started in, in chapter 14 so we could kind of walk with Mark through Holy Week, Passion Week, Jesus's uh, crucifixion and resurrection, obviously, this morning. Um, but next week, we go back to Mark chapter 1. And so it'll be like a, a fresh start. So if, if you're new, this is your first Sunday. This is a great time. We'd love to invite you back um, next week to, to start the Gospel of Mark with us. But this morning, I want to begin by inviting you to imagine a scene with me, okay? Um, Imagine you're driving home from church on an unusually cold and rainy Sunday for mid-April in St. Louis, and you're thinking to yourself, man, this would be a perfect Sunday to go home, sprawl out on the couch, flip on the TV, and just take a nap, All right? Just, just drift into uh, a nap. So you arrive home, you do some channel surfing, you notice that golf is on. Perfect, Right? picturesque, beautiful scenes, birds softly chirping. Everyone, you're not allowed to talk above a whisper. This is a great napping soundtrack. But you quickly realize that something's different about today, this event. There's an energy, there's a buzz in the air. And so as you listen, you realize the commentators catch you up. Apparently, Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer of our era, who yet has not won a major tournament in over a decade and has never won a major tournament after trailing three rounds going into a Sunday. Tiger has done the impossible and come roaring back from multiple surgeries, from public disgrace, from two strokes behind on Sunday. And now he stands on the 18th green, the final hole at the Masters, one simple one-foot putt away from perhaps the greatest comeback in sports history. And so, he lines up, he checks his line, lines up his shot, he steps beside the ball. He takes one last glance at the cup, he exhales, backstroke, forward stroke, and as he strikes the ball, your TV goes... <laughs> Static, 
the dreaded ant race. I don't know if TVs even do that anymore. We don't have cable, but probably not. I will play again for you non-sports fans. Um, Now the scene is the early 20th century North Atlantic Ocean. It's a cold, blustery night, but this ship is aflame with passion. Forbidden love is in the air. A beautiful young heiress, Rose, has fallen for a lowly commoner, Jack. The soundtrack of their love now softly plays in the background. Just setting the mood. You there with me? Okay. When suddenly the magic is interrupted by shouts of iceberg right ahead. The crew begins to work frantically to avoid catastrophe. Slowly, the massive ship begins to correct course and turn, but you fear it may be too late. You hear shouts, we're going to hit. And despite knowing how the story ends, you watch on in suspense, gripping your chair, riveted, bracing for impact as the movie cuts to the credits directed by James Cameron, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet. All right, you ready to try one more cliffhanger ending? Would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. I'll read it for us. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen at the front. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away for us the the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. For you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you have quite a sense of humor ending the story this way. And yet, you are the master storyteller. And you knew exactly what you were doing when you inspired John Mark to pen these words nearly 2,000 years ago. And so now, Father, we pray that just as you inspired his writing, would you so too now inspire our hearing and our understanding and our application of your word that it may accomplish that which you purpose and succeed in the thing for which you have sent it. In our lives, for your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, I, I don't know about y'all, but I like closure. I like clarity, things being well-defined. Uh, dating was hard for me until Facebook 
came along my sophomore year of college. I'll let you do the math. Uh, but thank God for Mark Zuckerberg because he brought clarity to my relationships. Are we Facebook official? <clears throat> do you remember the days when you actually had to wait six months to get resolution to the series finale of your favorite TV show when it ended on a cliffhanger, to find out who the sniper hit at the end of season one of The West Wing, to find out whether Ross and Emily went through with the wedding after he said Rachel's name at the altar. Thank God for Netflix. Now we just wait and we let the whole series run its course and then we binge watch it all at once because I can't take the suspense, right? So God, what are you trying to do to me here at the end of Mark Chapter 16, the end of Mark's entire gospel. This is how his story ends. Verse 8, the women fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Roll credits. That's how it ends. We don't meet the resurrected Jesus. He doesn't go out with a big pep rally like he does at the end of Matthew's gospel. Go make disciples of all nations. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. He doesn't, we don't get the closure of, of seeing the risen Christ ascend bodily into heaven like he does at the end of Luke's gospel. Instead, Mark ends his gospel with a few terrified, fleeing, dumbfounded women. Now, some of you will notice in your Bibles, verses 9 through 20 just below this, but you may also notice a parenthetical note there. Uh, that reads something like some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. So I'm not going to take up time this morning or even next week, next Sunday, actually preaching on the so-called longer ending of Mark or explaining why I don't believe that that is actually Mark's real original ending. Most scholars don't. Most pastors don't. We, we, we think that that was a later edition. Um, but I will quickly uh, make this plug for our, our podcast, Going Deeper, the West Hills podcast. Uh, if you're wondering, wait a minute, you're telling me that Christians don't even agree on what passages belong in the Bible. Uh, if you're curious about that, I invite you to check out our podcast. That'll be the focus of, of this week's episode um, to kind of tie us over and get us back to Mark chapter 1. But suffice it to say, our best evidence historically today suggests that the early church was just so unsettled by Mark's abrupt ending in verse 8, that Christian writers a century later decided they had to bring some closure, some clarity to his gospel for him, and they added verses 9 through 20. But all of this brings us to a bigger question this morning. Why? Why does Mark end his gospel this way? If John Mark was the assistant of the apostle Peter, if Mark's gospel serves as a memoir of Peter's own firsthand experiences, recollections of Jesus, Peter who had been Jesus' own right-hand man, Peter who personally encountered the resurrected Christ. Why would Mark, of all people, recording Peter's eyewitness testimony intentionally omit all these appearances of the resurrected Jesus? If Mark knew from talking with Peter about all these miraculous encounters, of the risen Christ, why did he choose instead to end his gospel with speechless women running scared? I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason Mark intentionally ends his biography of Jesus in this way is twofold, and I'll build the rest of this morning's message around these two points. First, 
Mark wants to show us that even Jesus' closest followers, even after he told them, not once, not twice, but three times he predicted, I have to die, I will be buried, and I will come back. I'll be raised from the dead. And yet even his closest followers who knew him best, who knew him personally, who walked with him, who learned from him every single day, day in and day out, they don't get it. They didn't understand his resurrection. And so they didn't respond to it properly. So Mark wants to humanize his followers. But secondly, and even more important, I think Mark ends with a cliffhanger because he's inviting us, you and me, this morning to finish the story for ourselves. Mark leaves us with an open-ended quasi-conclusion because he wants to force you to answer the question for yourself. Forget how they responded historically 2,000 years ago. How will you respond to the risen Christ today? That's the question before us this morning, friends. And so let's unpack both those questions, both those reasons this morning. Reason number one, that Mark ends his gospel so abruptly, was to humanize Jesus' followers. So I'll do a quick recap here for our first-time visitors. Uh, Chapter 15 ended with Jesus' death on the cross and his 12 closest male followers, the disciples, nowhere to be found. But we did hear that the women, these same women from chapter 16, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they never left his side. They were there at the foot of the cross. And so last week in my sermon on responding to the cross, I actually used these women as an example for us of how we ought to respond to the cross with faithful devotion willing to lay down our lives in return for the eternal life that Jesus has offered us by virtue of his death in our place on the cross. The only right response to such sacrificial love, such amazing grace, is devotion. And in chapter 15, these women exemplify it. And then we come to chapter 16. And I want you to notice how Mark specifically writes this stark contrast between what the angel, so Mark just calls him a man, but but Matthew and John are clear in their accounts of the resurrection. This is an angel, a direct emissary from God. What the angel instructs them to do in verses six through seven, and then, on the other hand, how the women actually respond in verse eight. And so to do this, I'd like to get a little audience participation gets you involved here. So you tell me, there's four things, four imperative verbs that, that stand out in verses six through seven here. What does the angel instruct them to do? What does he tell them to do? First, don't be alarmed. Number one, good. What's next? Well, then he says, you, he, statement of fact, you're seeking him, but he's not here. And then what does he tell them to do next? See See the place, behold the place where they laid him. And then what's the third one? Go, go and tell his disciples. And then lastly, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to go to Galilee. Go with the disciples to Galilee because you're going to see him there. You're going to encounter the risen Jesus there. Now, let's do the same thing with the women's response from verse 8. What is their reaction? We hear four things again. 
What did they do? They went out and fled. Secondly, why did they flee? Yeah, because trembling and astonishment had seized them. What, are they, and what else did they not do? <laughs> they don't say anything to anyone. Why? Because they're afraid. Theoretically, they're so paralyzed in fear. We hear nothing of them going to Galilee, right? They're paralyzed in fear. So look with me now, side by side, the direct contrast between how they're instructed to respond to the resurrection and how they actually respond. Why does he do this? Why does Mark highlight this contrast so vividly for us? I think he purposely does this to draw our attention to the women's failure to respond rightly to the resurrection, lest at the end of the story, we make the mistake of making them the heroes. Look at these wonderful women who stuck by Jesus' side all the way to the end. Look at their great love, their great faithfulness, their great devotion. And to that ending of his gospel, Mark says, oh no. No, 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 this story isn't about them. The story isn't about their faithfulness. It's not about their love. It's not about their devotion. Mark says there's only room for one hero in this story. And by the way, do you want to guess which gospel comes down the harshest on the apostle Peter time and time again? The gospel that makes Peter come out looking like an absolute nincompoop. It's Mark. It's the gospel that Peter narrated because Mark and Peter both know that there's only room for one hero here. It's Jesus. So friends, can I just clear the air of sort of the elephant in the room this morning for us? Like I told you, I'm big on clarity. I don't do well with subtlety and Christian niceties. Let's cut through this. Listen, we basically got two people here this morning. You're one of two people, either There's those of us who are actively involved in the church. Some of us even get paid to be here, like professional Christians. And then there are many of you for whom this might be your first time back in church in a long time. For for a couple of you, I, I know your friends who brought you told me, this might be your first time ever in church. That is so exciting to us. Like I'm, I hope that I don't scare you off with my joy. Um, We're so glad you're here. So glad. Or maybe you just fall into that category that we've so lovingly nicknamed in the church, Creasters. Because you're faithfully here two weeks a year, Christmas and Easter. Listen, whatever your reason for being here, whether it's a family tradition, and that's all church is for you, whether you came early for the Easter egg hunt for your kids, whether you're here to get those annoying neighbors finally off your back who've been inviting you to church over and over, finally just shut them up and come to church on Easter. Whatever your motivation, I don't care. I just want to tell you I'm so glad you're here this morning, but can I just get real with you for a second? I think that Mark ends the story by humanizing these otherwise faithful, devoted women because I think he wants to remind us, the regulars, those of us who fancy ourselves the devoted followers of Jesus, he wants to remind me that I am not the hero of this story. Those neighbors who invited you, who seem like the super Christians, the perfect, idyllic family that have it all together, guess what? They don't. 
Trust me, I'm their pastor. I've got dirt on them. They've probably come to me for, for counseling. I, I could tell you stories. I'm bound by pastoral confidentiality. I, I can't tell you. But they're not the hero of the story. They're not the perfect super Christians you think they are. You say, but surely you're different. You're a pastor. <laughs> Don't even get me started on me, all right? I will tell you those stories. How much time do you have? I am not the hero. I am not the good, devoted, always faithful, never failing follower of Jesus that, that maybe other pastors from the past have led you to believe that they are. I can't speak for them. That's between them and the Lord. All I can do is lay my cards on the table this morning and confess to you, tell you that I'm not the hero, okay? If you're looking, if you're here and you're new and you're looking for a church with a perfect pastor, I hope they've got a, a, a night service tonight at the, at the church down the street because it's not here. I'm not a perfect pastor, but friends, hear the good news of Jesus this morning straight from his lips. Mark 2, those who are healthy have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can we do one more crowd participation here? By show of hands, literally, how many of y'all would admit this morning that you are not perfect? Okay, if you don't have your hand in the air, we're going to talk later, because I need to know your secret. All of us, right? That you're spiritually sick, you're spiritually sick, and you struggle with sin. Okay, so I want the record to show that on this day, Easter Sunday, the year 2019 of our Lord, Every hand at West Hills Church, and I can tell you it was at the first service too, every hand was raised in confession that we are broken sinners in need of redemption and grace. And friends, if you raised your hand, let me tell you quickly what that means. Three things, practically, according to the Bible, that that means for your life. Number one, that means that left on your own, you are disqualified from heaven. That's the bad news part of this. On your own merit, you do not deserve to go to heaven. Heaven is the perfect residence of a perfect God, admissible to perfect people only. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is like saying unless your golf game exceeds that of Tiger Woods, you do not get into heaven by your good deeds. Good does not equal perfect. Better than most does not equal perfect. Gold star attendance award growing up in Sunday school does not equal perfect. God does not grade on a curve. You're perfect or you're imperfect. And if you're imperfect, you don't get into heaven on your own merit. Wait. Number two, if you raised your hand, that means if you've been using the church's hypocrisy as an excuse to stay home on Sundays, to cut God out of your life. Let the record show this morning that every single person at this church, I can't speak for other churches, at West Hills Church, every single person raised their hand to publicly confess that they're a sinner, to admit that we don't have it all together, that we are not the heroes. Can we do me a favor? Can we just really nail this home this morning? More crowd participation. Can you turn, literally turn to somebody sitting beside you and look them in the eye right now and say to them, you're not the hero. Can you do that? You're not the hero. All right, good. All right, now, now I want you to turn 
the other direction to the person you're less comfortable with, turn the other way and look them in the eye and I want you to say, you are sick. Say, you're sick. You're sick. You're spiritually sick. We're all in the same condition, friends. We are spiritually sick. We are in desperate need of a savior. And the only thing that's different about those of us who who are here is that we claim to have met him. His name is Jesus. There's nothing special about us. There's everything special about him. And so I have you do that just to remind you, if you've stayed away from church, either because you thought that, that you weren't good enough to be here, that church was for healthy, good people, and you weren't good enough to be here, or you stayed away because you thought you were better than us, because we're all a bunch of hypocrites, and at least you're honest about your condition, let the record show this morning that West Hills Church is a place where we admit our brokenness and our need for the Savior. We are regular people who know that we desperately need help and simply found, claim to have found it in the person of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and that's you and you can confess your brokenness, this is a place where you belong. You belong at West Hills Church. We'd love to have you here. But thirdly, and most significantly, if you raised your hand a moment ago, that means not only are you disqualified from heaven on your own merit, not only are you welcomed here at West Hills, but number three and most importantly, that means you are actually halfway to heaven already. You're halfway there because the Bible says that salvation is available to all who do two things. Number one, confess. And number two, believe. Believe. If you raise your hand this morning in confession that you're broken, then you're at least halfway there. Now that all, all, all that's left now, once you know that you're sick, is to find the physician and receive the cure. That's it. And that brings us to point number two. Reason number two that Mark ends the story so abruptly with a cliffhanger is to invite us personally to read ourselves into Jesus' story to write the ending for ourselves. Mark doesn't want us to get so caught up in the women's response, in the disciples' response, even in Jesus' response after he shows up and starts doing more miracles, that we blow past and miss the empty tomb. Because Mark knows the empty tomb is an invitation. His empty tomb is our invitation. Mark leaves us with this visual, this picture seared into our minds of amazement at a grave that three days earlier contained a physical body, lifeless, that now is nowhere to be found, all right? So let's just quickly run down the possibilities this morning because this is really what it all boils down to. This is the ball game. When it comes down to it this morning, before we even ask the question that I started with, what are you going to do with the resurrection? I, I suppose I should first establish that there was a resurrection. And that's a historical fact, friends. We, we, this is not, Christianity is not a religion rooted in some sort of subjective, meditative, whatever. It's rooted in historical fact. It's either verifiable or it's not. The resurrection of Jesus 
So I'll let Kent Hughes summarize the facts for us. If you want to read with me, even the most extreme skeptics do not deny that the grave was empty, including the early Jewish polemicist. Even Jesus' enemies, those trying to disprove him and write against him, didn't uh, read Matthew 28, read uh, the extra-biblical accounts of Josephus. We have multiple independent attestation, even from Christ's enemies, from non-Christians, first-century primary sources, to the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty evidenced, amongst other things, by the fact that the first witnesses were all women. In first century Judaism, the testimony of women wasn't considered reliable. It wasn't even admissible in court. So the idea that the early church could have made this story up in this way with these details makes absolutely no sense. Wouldn't have happened. So Kent Hughes asked, so then where's his body? The Jews didn't have it, for they would have produced it post-haste. Listen, the Jewish leaders had a vested interest in making sure that Jesus stayed dead, in making sure that he could be proved to be dead. If they had had the body for some reason hiding it, they would have been the first ones to come forward and be like, see, here, he's still dead. The disciples didn't have it, for if they did, it would have been psychologically and spiritually impossible for them to live the dedicated martyrs' lives and deaths that they did. Read Fox's Book of the Martyrs for yourself. It's one thing to believe a lie. It's a whole other thing to be willing to die for something that you know is a lie. Listen, if if I had some weird ulterior motive for perpetuating this belief that Jesus was risen when I was hiding his body in my closet, in in my house, that's, that's one thing. I don't even know what that reason would be. But all that goes out the window when the Roman soldiers show up with their swords, right? I don't I don't keep perpetuating a lie. At the tip of the spear. Only a clinically insane person would do that. And we're talking about dozens of stories of first-hand accounts. First-century Christians who said, I will rather die than deny my Lord, the risen Jesus, because I saw him. And you can kill me, but death lasts for a moment. Eternity lasts for forever. Were they all insane? Dozens of them. And so Kent Hughes concludes, when someone says, I don't believe in your resurrection, ask them, then what happened to the body of Jesus? That's a, that's a problem if you're a skeptic that I would love to have a discussion with you about and, and see how you, you figure that out for you and wrestle with it. For me, I feel like I've done a lot of the homework. I've, I've researched it for myself. I lived most of my adult life as a skeptic and the evidence is just overwhelming. I mean, the historical evidence is overwhelming. I will give you 11 arguments for the resurrection to go home and research for yourself. Some of them I've already touched on. Some of them you you can just go touch on yourself. But if you want to write these down, research them for yourself. The gift we're going to give you at the info bar is The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. Uh, If you're a visitor, please go do that. Read it for yourself. He'll go in more depth. Number one, the empty tomb. How else do you explain it? Number two, the witness of the women. Embarrassing testimony. Of, of the women. Number three, early non-Christian testimony, like Josephus, like the Toledoth Yesu. Number four, the Nazareth inscription. Go, go look it up. Number five, the conversion of James. Number six, the conversion of Saul to Paul. People that had a vested interest in not following Jesus, who derailed their lives in order to do so because they encountered him personally in the flesh. Number seven, the martyrdom of the apostles. We covered that. Number eight, the founding of the church in Jerusalem. It would have been a non-starter 
Why would, you, why would you turn around and preach in the very same city where his body laid if it was still there? Let's just go dig it up and find it. Number nine, the spread of the church. How else do you get thousands of people within a few years of his death to sign up for a new religion that, oh, by the way, is illegal and punishable by death if it's not true? Number 10, the transformed lives of believers all throughout history. And lastly, the Bible, the inspired word of God itself, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Friends, these are not, I don't know what you grew up learning in your Sunday school. These are not, this is not a good book of moral instruction. These are biographies. These are historical letters written as testimonies to a historical event, the historical event at the center of all of history. And that's why Mark ends with the empty tomb, to force us to reckon with it historically, but not just historically, Mark wants us to reckon with it personally as well. And this is where we'll, where we'll end this morning. He wants us to reckon with it personally. How will you respond personally to the risen Jesus? It's sort of like Mark is writing, and all of a sudden he stops. But instead of putting a period, Mark puts an ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. And then he turns to you, the reader, and he says, here, and he hands you the pen. He says, you get to write chapter 17. How are you going to respond? Your story doesn't have to end in a period either because his grave was empty. That's what the resurrection means. That's what the empty tomb means, friends. Your story, when, when they write your tombstone, they make your tombstone one day. He died this day, she, died, she, she, she was born this day, she died this day. That sentence on your tombstone doesn't have to end with a period now because of the resurrection of Jesus. Your story now can end with an ellipsis, dot, 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 to be continued. In heaven, in glory, in paradise, with your Savior for all eternity, because he conquered sin and hell and death itself on the cross. The empty tomb was the receipt that the payment was received. The payment was made in full. The Father has accepted Christ's payment for your sins. The check cleared. And now Jesus holds the keys to life everlasting. And he wants to share it with you this morning. But I'll remind you again this morning, friends, it's not enough simply to confess. If you confess, you're halfway there. But you must confess and believe. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, receive Jesus who believed in his name by faith. He gave the right to become the children of God. That's good news but only if we confess and believe. And so I ask you again this morning, friends, how will you respond to the resurrection? Will you receive the risen Christ? Let's pray.